Well, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue our series into the book of Galatians. And last week we went ahead and started in chapter 1. And you recall that the, the, the point of chapter 1, for the most part, was Paul making a case for his, his authority as an apostle. The problem was at the time that, that all the other apostles had walked with Jesus, they had studied with Jesus, and Paul was a little bit different. We know that uh, while Jesus was around, he was actively opposing all of this stuff, and it wasn't until he had his, his uh, experience on the Damascus Road where, where Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That he finally gives his life to Christ and he becomes an apostle. So it's a little bit different situation. So the problem was is people were saying, wait a minute, you weren't with Jesus, you can't be an apostle. And Paul begins to make his case for his credentials, if you will. And he argued that, no, my position as an apostle is every bit as valid as Peter and James and John and those working uh, that walked with Jesus. And we're going to start today as we begin in chapter 2. Paul's going to continue to make his case. He's going to make it very clear that his position is valid. We're going to see him actually travel to Jerusalem for the first time 14 years into his ministry. He heads up to Jerusalem and he sees the, the pillars of the faith up there, which was uh, Peter, James, and um, drawing a blank. Peter, James, and John, I believe. And uh, he goes up there to make his case to them. And we find out that that he gives demonstration that, you know what, I went up there and I, I told them what I was preaching and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They were right there with me. And then even time after that, when Peter begins to slip back a little bit, Paul stands up to Peter, he rebukes him, and we see that Peter accepts his authority. So we know that, that Paul's position as an apostle is, is solid. He, it's the real deal. He's not just making it up on his own. And that's the case he's making to the Galatian church right now. And then finally, as we finish this chapter, and we're going to actually head into chapter 3 a little bit, we're going to see that uh, uh, he begins to reiterate that salvation is by faith, and faith alone, it's not by works. And he begins to lay out the case in Scripture and, and people's personal experience and begins to show how salvation is by faith alone. So you guys ready to get into it? Man, not everybody at once. I guess that was the part where you're supposed to say Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God, let's go. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul, after preaching for 14 years, he gets this revelation on the, the road to Damascus, uh, Jesus begins to reveal the plan of salvation to him and, and tells him he needs to take it to the Gentiles. And he immediately begins preaching. We saw that last week. He immediately begins preaching. And he doesn't even see or meet an apostle for three years. But now he goes for another 14 years. He's preaching. He's ministering the Gospels. And basically what happens is he's in, he's in Antioch and he's preaching the Gospel there to the Gentiles. And a bunch of Jews, Christian Jews, were coming up and began to come after him and tell the Gentiles that no, in order to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. So they begin saying that you need to follow the law, you need to become circumcised. And we can read about this backstory in Acts chapter 15. And, and Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debated with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. I want you to remember that little part right there. They get sent to Jerusalem, but along the way they continue preaching the gospel. That will come up here in a, in, in a little bit. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that they had done with them. So like I said, Paul's preaching in Antioch. Some people from Judea come, out, come down, and they begin to say, no, these, these guys aren't saved. They've got to they gotta be circumcised. They have to follow the law of Moses to be saved. The problem was is that the Jews at the time, they couldn't separate salvation and the grace of God away from being a Jew. They understood that the Jews were God's chosen people, and we know that. 
and salvation is through the Jews and from the Jews, but the Gentiles were now being allowed into this covenant with God. But the Jewish people couldn't get it out of their head that, that God would let people that weren't Jews enter into this covenant of salvation. They couldn't separate the grace of God and the gift of salvation from being a Jew. So they're telling everybody that, no, you've got to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. And, it, and in order to become a Jew, that involved keeping the law and, and, and the joy of circumcision, which I hear is not fun if you're an adult. As a kid, you just don't remember it. But as an adult, not a whole lot of fun. So, Paul is given a revelation from God, and he says, you know what, go up to the church in Jerusalem and speak to the leaders there. So they sent them on the way, he's given a revelation, and he took it up there so that he could make sure that he had not run in vain. He basically needed to get consensus and agreement from the leaders of the Jerusalem church so that there was no split in the ministries. We didn't want to have a where he's preaching to the Gentiles and somehow it becomes some different version or sect of Christianity different than the one the Jews were preaching. Because, as we all know, there's, there's only one church and one Christ and one God. We're all the same church. And, and Paul wanted to make sure that we weren't having this split, that his ministry to the Gentiles would not be undermined by the ministry to the Jews. So in essence, he's, going, he's seeking wise counsel. He's seeking counsel from the leaders of the church. He wanted to make sure that he was acting in a godly manner, that he had the Spirit of the Lord, and he wanted to ensure that everybody was on the same page. And we know that, that Paul's got it right, because it says here that, that he went up because of a revelation. God has given him this message, and God has given him, told him to go speak to them. And God's given him the words to speak so he can make his case before the Jerusalem leaders there. And this may seem odd. I look at this and I'm like, man, why would God have him go up there and, and, and hash it out with these guys and make sure they're on the same page if, if God gave him the revelation himself? I mean, this is the word of God. But the truth is that God has established order. He's established leadership in his church for a reason. There's a reason why when, when churches are planned out, it's good to have them being sent from another church so there's an authority structure in place. God is a God of order and not chaos. But in this case, I mean, Paul's convinced of his revelation. I don't believe for one second that Paul's going up there to get permission. He's going up there to argue his case, to make sure that everyone's on the same page. He was convinced of the word of the Lord that he had, and he was willing to fight for it. And we'll see that at times later he does, he does fight for the revelation that he had. He never questioned his revelation. When he says that in order to make sure that I was not running or I had not run in vain, he wasn't preaching for 14 years and went, wait a minute. Do I really have this right? Maybe I should go talk to, to Peter and just make sure. He, he, the, the running in vain had nothing to do with a questioning the word of God that he had. He, was, he wanted to make sure that the, the Jewish uh, section of Christianity would not be undermining his ministry. He wanted to make sure that he wouldn't go preach somewhere and then right after him these Judaizers would come through and, and preach something different. So that was the point of, point of that is, is he was going up to make sure that everybody was on the same page to make sure that everybody was in agreement, to make sure that he was acting wisely. And it had nothing to do with maybe he was wrong, but everything to do with just making sure that there was agreement in the body. And I think that today, the same is true for each and every one of us. When we're setting out for God, when God is giving us something new, when God is giving you a calling on your life, we need to make sure that we're getting counsel and wisdom from other godly men and, and, and godly leaders and those that we submit to in our lives as well. Even when we know that we have the word of God, we still need to be getting wise counsel. Because none of us are so knowledgeable, none of us are so spiritual that we have it all figured out, that we don't need godly counsel from somebody else. In Proverbs 15.22 it says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19:20 through 21 says listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We need to make sure that we're working in God's will, that what we've heard is correct, that that we're getting agreement from other leaders in our community. This is just a couple of the scriptures. If you want to see how many scriptures there are on getting godly counsel and wisdom, just throw it in Google. 
you'll be amazed at how many times in the Bible it advises us to get counsel before we head out. This is actually the very reason that, that as, as you guys know, we've been looking into getting this building. And when we started this, this is a huge step of faith for us because, to be honest with you, at this point, point in time, we don't bring in enough income for the church to pay the rent and all the bills that are coming ahead. We're going to be in the hole when we first start out. But I felt like God had told me that this is the building. It's time to step out in faith. Now, we've been wise about it. We've saved up. I think at this current moment, we have about $42,000 sitting in the bank to cover that gap until we grow. So we're being wise about it. But this is still a big step of faith. And I, I believe that I had the word of God. Matter of fact, when we were going through the final negotiations of this, we're looking at things. We're, we're getting a, uh, initial costs coming back. And I'm sitting down with Ryan, and he gives me the first numbers. And I'm like, yep, this ain't happening. I told you where we needed to be. And I got up from the table and said, sorry, I apologize, we wasted your time, and I was getting ready to walk away. And Ryan said, well, wait a minute, what can we do? And God said, no, sit back down, this is it. Even though, and my head already determined that this was not it, but it was. So I sat back down, God told me this is it. And the numbers didn't get any smaller from that point forward, that, that this is a lot more than I had in mind what, what I wanted to spend, that I felt comfortable, you know, to make sure they're okay, but... This is a step of faith for all of us as we step out into this. But for this very reason, when I felt like God had told me this is it, still looking at this, this is kind of crazy. So I sat down with my pastors and I presented them. I said, here's our finances. Here's what we have. Michelle and I have prayed about it. This is the word of God that I've received. What do you think? And I got wise counsel, and they, they agreed that it was the Word of God, and we moved forward. But we need to make sure in everything that we do that we're getting wise counsel to confirm the will of God in our life. Because if we go out and set out and do things on our own, that's, what, that's how cults get started. That's how craziness gets started, because people hear from God when they really haven't. And when we go to seek counsel, we need to make sure that, that we're looking to hear what's being said, not just looking for agreement. Has anybody ever went to somebody just for agreement so you could get do what you wanted to do? You're like, hey, what do you think of this? And they're like, ah, oh, that, that's not right. And you're like, let me go ask somebody else. What do you think of this? Oh, that's okay. So then you go ahead and do it. That's not what it's about. We need to make sure that we're open to hearing from those that we, that we trust and are allowing to speak into our lives too. Amen? Because the way I see it, if Paul was willing to let his revelation stand to counsel and advice of other men, then we should as well. Because the truth is, it's the only way we're going to make sure that we're not running in vain. Then in Galatians 2, 3 through 5, it says, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Well, I guess we'll first we'll start out with this scripture and talk about who is Titus. Titus was a Gentile believer whom Paul had won to the Lord. If you read in, in the book of Titus, in, in the, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he refers to him as his true child in the faith. This was a, a man that Paul had led to the Lord. And we see that he comes with Paul to this trip to the Jerusalem church more than likely is exhibit A. You know, he's going from and say, hey, this is, I want, I want you to tell me something. This is Titus. He's a Gentile. He's Greek. He's not a Jew. He's not been circumcised, yet he's saved. We have, you know, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We have evidence of the whole thing. His life has changed. Explain to me how that happened if he wasn't circumcised, if he had to be circumcised for that to happen. Kind of comes as, as exhibit A to prove the Gentiles are receiving the Lord and getting saved. We also see that, that he meets with Paul out in the Corinthian church to help him out when, when that church was going through some issues. We know there's a couple letters in the, in, the, in the Bible to the Corinthian church because they were going through some stuff. And we see that uh, Titus was actually out there helping Paul minister to them. So we know that he was, he was trusted. He was, he was a trusted co-laborer of Paul. Paul trusted Titus to, to help lead churches that he had founded and we all know as we've looked at these different letters of paul how much paul cares for his churches he's not going to just let anybody in there 
And then we also see that Titus was a pastor as well. The book of Titus was Paul's instructions to him as he led his church and he trained others to do, this, to do the same. So Paul comes up, and what we just looked at here is he met with, with uh, the pillars of the church there and, and had a private meeting with them. And uh, then now he's going to address the assembly. First, he goes up there, meets with those pillars. He has a private meeting with them, explains to them the gospel, and they're on the same page with him, and they're in agreement with him, and now he's got to address the... What is that? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) So after... (laughs) All right, back to where we were. All right, so now... (laughs) He's standing in front of the assembly, all the elders, all the apostles, everybody's there. And once again, he's, he's making his case. He's got Titus with him. And in Acts 15, we can continue to read more. Actually, this first part of chapter 2 in Galatians parallels right along with, with Acts chapter 15. And it says when they, in Acts chapter 14, 15, verse 4 through 5, it says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done to them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and say, It is necessary to circumcise them in order, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now we're up in Jerusalem, and we got some of them that have the same idea there as well. And Paul refers to those people who have this idea as <clears throat> uh, false brothers that were secretly bought in. That he says that, I mean, these guys, if, if they don't have a grasp, but it's by faith and faith alone, they're not even really Christians. They're trying to hold on to the law. And he says that they've come in to steal the freedom of the believer and place them once again into slavery. He says that he wants to bring them back into slavery. In Galatians 5.1, when we get there, you'll see that Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And what he means when Christ has set us free is that Christ has set us free from sin. This doesn't mean that we're free to sin, but it means we're actually free not to sin. And some people have trouble getting that concept in their head because before you're saved, it's actually impossible for you not to sin. You are a slave to sin. But once you become saved, you're finally free to live the life that God has called you to live. And it's not because we have a list of rules and uh, regulations to follow. But it's because that we live a sin-free life because God has changed us on the inside. We're finally able to do so. And the law was there to basically be a yardstick to, to, to the Jewish people. It said, this is the, 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 the standard of measure that you have to hit. It's your plumb line. But when Jesus came along and he gave his life for us, they did away with the law because we didn't have to meet those standards to be saved. But we have to just accept his gift of salvation by faith to be saved. Now that doesn't mean, don't take for a moment ever, I mean, then that means that we can do all those things on that list that we weren't supposed to do before. Like I said, it doesn't mean we're free to sin. It's not licentiousness. We don't have a license to sin, but we're rather we're finally free not to sin. We can finally be the people that, that can actually meet that standard because of the changes inside of us. We're finally able to live the godly life that God has called us to. But as they're coming in, they're trying to bring them back into that yoke of slavery, make them submit to the law, make them have to to submit to those standards. He says that they're trying to steal their freedom. And Paul says, you know what? We didn't yield in submission even for a moment. We didn't consider it because we know that's not the way. Salvation is through faith in Christ and through faith alone, not by the works of the law, not by anything that any individual has accomplished, but it's by grace. And we shouldn't compromise either. We should never compromise in our lives to think that somehow we're going to add something to what Christ has already accomplished. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of work. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's a free gift. Not on the basis of our, of our works, but on the basis of what He's accomplished on the cross. Amen? And then in Galatians 2, 6 through 10, it says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through the Peter for his apostolic ministry for the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And one, we're talking about the, the pillars again. He's, he's, he's referring to those who seem to be influential, and that's, that's Peter, James, and John at this point. And, and this James here is, is James, the Lord's brother. It's not James the Apostle. James the Apostle was actually uh, uh, was killed. He was martyred by Herod. But uh, this is James, the Lord's brother. Anyway, but he says, he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Anybody think, it's a little snarky to anybody else. It comes across as, as, as kind of negative. When he says those who seem to be influential, in our language that comes across as kind of, of dismissive. Like he's kind of like, you know, whoever they are, I don't care. And it's, it's not the case. In the Greek, it actually doesn't come across quite as harsh. In the Greek, it's more, more long to say that, that uh, he was saying those that were thought of or those who had reputation. He's not being snarky. He's not being sarcastic. He's, it's, we just translate it weird. In our, it comes across weird in how we speak. But he's just saying for those who were influential, those who were, who were the leaders of the church, they seem to be leaders. But then he says who they are makes no difference to him. And that's another thing you're like, man, that's kind of harsh too. But it's obvious that, that Paul respected those leaders. If he didn't respect them, he wouldn't have came up and spent time in private with them, discussing things with them. He wouldn't have co-labored with them. What he's, he's not saying that I don't care who they are, I'm going to do what I want. What he's saying is, is that whatever their position is, it doesn't invalidate my position as an apostle as well. And what he's saying is God shows no partiality. What he's, that's exactly what he's saying. Is You know what? It doesn't matter that they walked with, with, with Jesus. It doesn't matter that they saw his crucifixion, that all of these things, that they were his disciples. What, it doesn't change who I am. I'm still an apostle even though I didn't do those things. And that's all that's being said there. And it just comes across weird in our language. Really in the Greek, it's not near as harsh. At least that's what people who are way smarter than me say. I don't actually know Greek. I just <laughs> I have to trust those who do. Uh, then he goes on to say, on the contrary, when they saw that I, that I had been entrusted with the gospel, oh, I'm sorry, went too far. He says, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. Once again, it sounds like they, they didn't do anything for me. They were just, you know, almost like they were a dead weight. But once again, all he was saying is that they didn't go, hey, you know what? This is our gospel. You got it pretty close, but let me clarify some things for you. That's all he was saying. He was just saying, you know what? They didn't add anything to me. They didn't say that I had it wrong. They, they actually agreed, as we'll see, that, that they're giving the, he's given the right hand of fellowship. So he says, on the contrary, instead of adding to my gospel or changing it in any way, he says that they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And once again, now it looks like we got two different Gospels going. But the truth is, there's only one Gospel. There's not a Gospel to the circumcised and a Gospel to the uncircumcised. All he's doing is referring to the different ministries. It says right here, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for my ministry to the Gentiles. It's one Gospel, just different spheres of influence, if you will. Peter preached primarily to the Jewish people, and Paul preached primarily to the Gentile people. But it's also not saying that that's all that they were allowed to preach for. They didn't, they didn't get a map out and say, these are your borders, these are mine. Don't talk to my people, I won't talk to yours. Because we know that, that, that Paul actually did minister to the Jewish people. When he went back to Jerusalem later, the first place he goes is to the temple to preach there. And we know that, that Peter also ministered to Gentiles as well. So really, there was only one gospel, just different spheres of influence. Kind of like the church in Tucson and our church, we're preaching the same thing, but we're reaching people in Marana that are reaching people in Tucson. Amen? All right. And then it says that Peter, James, and John, the James 
Cephas and John. Cephas is just another word for Peter. I think one's in Greek and one's in Aramaic. Same, same person, though. It says, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, and they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Basically, what they're saying is, just like today, when we come into an agreement with somebody, we shake hands. We say, you know what, I'm in agreement with you. Or when we welcome people into our homes, we'll oftentimes shake their hands. And that's all he's saying here. They were given the right hand of fellowship. That they, they basically shook their hand and said, you know what, we're with you, we're behind you, we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're working together, we're co-laboring together. And just as the, the handshake indicates today in agreement, that's, that's what they're talking about there. That, that the, the Jerusalem church was in agreement with, with Paul and what he was ministering to the Gentiles as well. Then in Galatians two eleven through fourteen, what time is it? Okay. In Galatians two eleven through fourteen it says, "But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party." And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So now sometime after the meeting up in Jerusalem that they had this, they all agreed that, that salvation was for the Jews and the Gentiles. They all agreed that, that circumcision wasn't necessary for the Gentiles. Sometime after that, Peter makes his way back down to Antioch where Paul is. But he's kind of slowly slipped back into his old way of thinking. And he's kind of slipped back into the attitude he once had before he became a Christian. Because it says that before these men from James came, he was eating with the Gentiles. And that's just a, a, another way of saying that, that he was equal with them. He, he viewed them as equals. They didn't, the Jews didn't eat with the Gentiles because they felt that they were God's chosen people and they were above them and they weren't going to, to soil themselves or become unclean by, by eating with them. So to say that he was eating with the Gentiles means that Peter was saying, agreed that they were equal with him. He was, he was in fellowship with them. But then what happened? Somewhere along the line, some people came with James and he drew back and separated himself once again. It says that because of fear of the circumcision party, basically because of fear of the Jews, he slipped back and started once again saying that, no, the Gentiles have to become a Jew first. You know, you'll remember that that Peter had been dealt with by God by this very issue. In Acts 10, 11 through 16, we see that Peter went up to the roof to pray. He fell into a trance, and it says in verse 11, Acts 10, verse 11, it says, And he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Paul basically dealt with Peter for this very issue. He says, listen, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. And we all know the story that some, a Gentile man came to his house, sent his servants to his house, and Paul went and ministered to a Gentile man. And God had dealt with Peter for this very same issue. And I find it interesting that you know, I think a lot of us think, man, if we lived in those days, if God was speaking right to me, man, I'd, I wouldn't have any doubt. I'd have it all figured out. I'd always do the right thing. But we see time and time again, people in the Bible, I mean, it's a flat-out revelation from God, vision from God, and he still slips back into his old way of thinking. I've known people that, that have become completely healed because of uh, uh, incurable diseases, and they, they, they trust God, they get completely healed, but then a few years later they're back into their old life and they're not serving God. And I'm always wondering, how could you have that experience and still turn back to where you were? But even Peter wasn't above that. He was an apostle and he still was able to slip back in that old way of thinking. And I want to remind us that before we're quick to judge Peter in this instance or anybody else that's going through this, that we need to remember a couple things. First, Peter grew up a Jew. His entire 
entire life he was a Jew. His, his entire life he was taught that the Gentiles were beneath them and that he couldn't associate with them. The Gentiles were inferior. And when you've been taught something your entire life, even when you have revelation, it's so easy to slip back into that. And second, all of us have had things in our lives that, that, that God is still working on us where we haven't fully expressed our faith and grabbed hold of the freedom that's offered in Christ. There are areas in our life that I think all of us struggle with. That even though on the inside we've made clean and perfect on the outside, we're still being sanctified in that. Our body quite hasn't caught up to what God has performed on the inside. And something else I want to point out in this is, says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Something we have to keep in mind too is that when we slip back and we make bad decisions, there's people that are looking up to us. There's people that are following us. And unfortunately, we will affect those who look up to us when we make poor decisions in our life as well. What we do doesn't just affect us, but it affects the others. Or Peter slipped back into that mindset and then the rest of the Jews followed him. And even Barnabas got wrapped up inside of it. And we know that Barnabas traveled with Paul the first time to argue the case the opposite. So we need to be very careful of what we do as well because it'll affect our children. It'll affect those who look up to us. Amen? But then it goes on to say that, that uh, Paul rebukes Peter and says, you know what, Peter? If you are a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? And basically, Paul is rebuking Peter. And I want you to know that, that Paul's not writing this to show how tough he is. Paul's not writing this to show that he has some special authority that, that Peter does not or any of these things. matter of fact, just a little while ago, he, he, he points out that God shows no partiality. Just like he understands that, that their position doesn't invalidate his and they're not necessarily above him, he understands the reciprocal as well. But what he's making the point is, is he's trying to argue his case for his apostleship. And he's saying that if, that if he is able to speak into the lives of the other apostles, that is also more evidence for the authority to his position. Amen? <clears throat> so he continues on. In Galatians 2, chapter 15 through 16, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter and Paul were both Jews by birth, right? They were born Jews. They were, they were born under the covenant of, of, of Abraham. They were circumcised. The whole works. They followed the law of Moses. They weren't born Gentiles. But we also know that it wasn't their Jewish birth that saved them, right? It says a person is not justified by the works of the law, but faith in Jesus. In this case, the issue was becoming a Jew. First by submitting to circumcision and then following the laws of Moses was being argued that this was the way to salvation. Jew first, then a Christian. And they were saying you couldn't become a Christian if you weren't a Jew. And you know, I think we see similar attitudes today in churches today as well. In today's churches, what I mean by attitude, it's not the same particular situation, but we'll see stuff like you know, you have to be baptized or you're not saved. Or you have to be a member of this church or you can't be saved. Or you have to tithe or you can't be saved. Or you must live without ever messing up or you won't be saved anymore. These are all works. None of these things will get you into heaven. Tithing is not going to get you into heaven. Living, if, if from this day forward you live a sinless life, that will not save you if that's all that you have. If you go to church every Sunday and every Wednesday and attend every Bible study and you read your Bible for two hours every morning and you spend four hours of prayer a day, that's not going to get you in heaven. Those are all works. It's only faith in Jesus that will get you into heaven. Now that doesn't mean that all those things aren't good. Man, if you spend four hours in a day reading your word and praying two hours a day and going to church, I mean, that would be good. You'd be a strong and mature Christian. Baptism will not save you, but... 
as obedient Christians, we need to be baptized. The Word says that we're to be baptized. Being a member of a church alone is not going to save you. But we are to be members and committed to a local church. We don't have, we don't have a, an official membership roster of Living Hope Family Church, but that doesn't mean that you guys aren't members of this church if you're a part of this church and committed to co-laboring with us. Tithing is not going to save you, like I said, but we honor God when we do so. And He honors and blesses us in return. And living a perfect life without sinning from this day forward will not save us. But if we have Jesus in our life, we actually have the ability to live a sinless life. Because he's changed us on the inside. Unfortunately, this attitude kind of makes it difficult for others to even get involved in the church, to come to Christ in the first place. Because they see this attitude portrayed of Christians on TV, or they see other people acting this way, and they get this idea in their head that they have to be right with God before they can even come to church before they even stand before God, because they understand that, oh yeah, if you're a Christian, you have to do this, this, and this, or otherwise God hates you and He's mad at you and He's, he's going to beat you with a stick. So they think that they have to get right with God first before they come and even have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. But the truth is, is that we don't get right with God before we come to Him. We come to Him to get right with Him. We have to come and receive Jesus to get right with Him. So like I said, Paul goes on and says, We are sons of Jubilee, but not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Basically, Peter, if you and I are Jews, and we were circumcised, we we did all those things, and we weren't saved, why do you think that they need that? It didn't work for us. Why is it going to work for the Gentiles? If we required faith to be saved, even following all these rules, then how is it any different from them? It's not the rules, it's not the circumcision, but it's their faith in Jesus, the same as ours. It says the works of the law saves no one. No one will be justified by the works of the law. It's not the things that we do that make us right with God, but it's the thing that Jesus did that makes us right with Him. Amen? And he continues on in Galatians 2, 17 through 19. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuilt what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So what he's saying here now is that if we get saved and then we sin, does that mean that Christ is a servant of sin? Does that mean that Christ is all about sinning? And he's like, yeah, do what you want. Saved by grace. You can do whatever you want now. Paul says, certainly not. Freedom in Christ is not licentiousness. It's not, a, it's not a license to sin. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want because we're forgiven. Unfortunately, people have received grace in that manner. saying, oh, I'm saved. I guess I can just do whatever I want. But the truth is, is that we don't have a freedom or a license to sin just because we're forgiven. And just because the Christian is free from the law doesn't mean it's okay to sin. And if one does sin after being found in Christ, that doesn't mean that Christ has sanctioned it. The truth is that righteousness by faith doesn't lead to sinning. It, res- it leads to a changed heart and the ability not to sin. And he goes on to say, For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. As I was studying this scripture and I was reading through a lot of the commentaries, I noticed there's actually a couple different ways that this, this particular verse is interpreted. The first one is, is that if anyone tries to rebuild what has been torn down, in other words, if they go back to the life that they had before they were a Christian, before they got saved, if they try to rebuild the old life, because you know when you get saved, the, the old man, your old you, is crucified with Christ. He's dead and gone. But if we try to rebuild that old man, if we try to resurrect him from the grave and begin to live in sin, it says then, then they're found to be the transgressor. Paul says, I myself am proven to be the transgressor. Not Jesus has made me a transgressor, but it's them doing it to themselves. 
The other interpretation, it's the more common interpretation, it's, it's, it's the, the one that I'm more inclined to believe is correct, is, that, is the picture of the Jewish Christian. And the reason why I'm inclined to believe this one is correct is because he's dealing with Peter at this point, right? He's talking to Peter. But he says that the Jewish Christian, if, what they've done is they've, they've torn down the law. They've said that the law is no longer what is required for us to be saved. They believe in faith as, a, as a, the the need for salvation is the, the... Man, I can't even think of the word I'm trying to say. Salvation is by faith and not by works. I'll just turn the words around. It'll be good. So, <laughs> salvation is by faith, not by works. That's, that's what they believe. They've torn down the law. It's no longer a requirement. And if that's what they have, have, have torn down, if they begin to build that back up for the Gentiles, they say, you know what? No, you Gentiles, you have to submit to the law. They're building up what they've torn down, Correct. But the problem is, they're no longer living according to the law because they're Christians now, they're Jewish Christians, and they're no longer living according to the law because salvation is by faith and not by works. But now they're building the law back up. Well, if they reinstate the law, they've now found themselves to be transgressing the law because they're not living according to the law anymore. And that's what's happening here. He says, you know what? If you want to bring the law back into it, but you're not actually living according to it, you've just made yourself a transgressor of the law. But then he says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. We're dead to the law because we died with Christ. However, we're now alive to God in Christ because we share in his resurrection. Amen? And then in Galatians 20 through 21 21, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To be crucified with Christ is to is the reality of having your old self killed. The old, the old man is dead and gone. This is the, the you, the, the me that deserved to die. Before I was saved, before you were saved, you deserved the penalty of death for your sin. The, the Bible says that the, that the wages of sin is death. But then Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. That old you was replaced with the life of Christ. And Christ died, and your old you died with him. You were crucified with him by faith. And that old man is dead and gone. The you who was unrighteous, the you who was a slave to sin is dead and gone. They're done with. That's what we've talked about. Baptism is a picture of that, that death, burial, and resurrection of the old you. The putting, being put down in the water is that old man being buried. And then coming out of the water is you coming out with newness of life. When we're struggling with sin, when we're having those temptations creep back into our lives, we do well to remember that the one who desired the sin, the one who was encaptivated by that sin, who was enslaved to that sin, is dead and gone. They're no longer there. The you that's still standing is no longer a slave to what's tempting you at that moment. And like I said, you know, how, how, what do you mean, Pastor Wayne, we're dead? The old man's dead. Obviously, I'm still alive. Like I said, that's by faith. That old man died with Christ by faith, and we live in newness of life by faith as well. Christ lives inside of you right now, and the life that we live is lived by faith in the Son of God. His death counted as our death as far as the the payment for sin is concerned, and His resurrection counted as ours as well. We stand before God with the life of Christ inside of us. When, When God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, our failing, because that's dead and paid for in Jesus, but he sees the life of Jesus inside of us, which was perfect and holy. And he says, if this could be obtained through the law, then there would be no need for Jesus. The reason Jesus came is because the law wasn't enough. It just pointed out our failures. It didn't actually fix anything. If the law could have made us righteous, then Jesus would have never had to come. But the fact is is that it couldn't in and of itself do it. All it could do is point out our problems. And then 
what that means is to go back to the law, to try to obtain righteousness by any kind of works, is to <clears throat> nullify the grace of God. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God by trying to go back to the law. Because if the law gave me righteousness, then Christ died for no purpose. There was no reason for him to be here. In simple terms, the law says that we need to do, do, do. But grace says that it's already been done in our lives. Amen? And in Galatians 3, chapter or chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you as before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly, publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? So now as we begin chapter 3, we saw that, that uh, Paul had made his case. He's finished his case for his, his credentials as an apostle. And he started talking about, now he's getting into making his case for salvation by faith and not by works. And we're going we're gonna to get started with that today. We're going to see his first couple of cases that he makes. Right now he's making a personal case. He's saying, listen, I want you to think about what happened to you and you tell me if that happened by the works of the law or by the Spirit of God. He's making the personal argument to them. He asks them, listen, how can you be so foolish to go back to the law when they experience the law of grace inside themselves. And a matter of fact, it says they suffered for it. It says that they suffered for the gospel. They lived the gospel. They received the gospel. How can you say, how can you go back when you yourselves know what that was like? You felt what that was like. You experienced salvation. You experienced the transformation inside of you. How can you be so foolish to go back to what was? So he asked them personally, he said, personally, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, how did you receive it? And obviously the answer to this was they received it by the Spirit, by faith. They received the Spirit by faith. And because he knows the answer to that, he goes on and continues. And he says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit that you're now being perfected by the flesh? It says they received the Spirit by faith. They were begun by the Spirit. They received it by faith. How are they now going to improve upon that is basically what he's asking. He's like, how are you going to improve upon that by your flesh? And this is a question I think that we need to seriously ask ourselves because I think many believers, we find ourselves with the same idea in our head. And what I mean by that is that have you ever slipped up, made a mistake, you've sinned, you've done something, and your first instinct is to think, how can I make this up to God? Anybody ever done that? That's, that's, that's this kind of thinking. We begin to think that, man, I, I, I sinned and now I've got to do something. I've got to feel guilty enough or God's not going to forgive me. I have to read my Bible enough or God's not going to forgive me. I have to pray more or God's not going to forgive me. We begin to add these things that we have to do to make ourselves right with God when the reality is, is that we are already right with God. And every time that we begin to try to add stuff to it, we're messing with grace. Nothing that we can do will add to the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ. And to allow ourselves to believe otherwise is to call into question the work of Jesus. And to be honest, it's a little egotistical if you ask me. Jesus, I know you were God in the flesh and you did, you did some pretty good stuff, but let me take it from here. I think that's a little crazy to say that to God. Then he asks to them, it says, if the Spirit being supplied to you or the miracles that were done among you were given because your incredible works of service or were they given to you because of the Word and you believed it. That's what he's saying here. He says, he says does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works a miracle among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive the Spirit? How were these miracles performed among you? Was it by faith or was it because you guys were just really awesome people doing all the right things? They knew, as well as Paul, the answer to these questions. They knew it was by faith. And it was by faith alone. 
And after he makes the personal argument, he begins to take a look at Scripture to continue his argument. In Galatians 3, 6-9, it says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So now Paul's saying, all right, we looked at what happened to you personally, but just so we're not there, let's go take a look at what happened in Scripture as well. And he begins to show that salvation by faith really isn't a new thing. In Genesis 15.6, this is spoken of Abraham. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, is righteousness. Even before the law was ever given, faith is what made somebody righteous. Abraham believed and he was considered righteous. He didn't even have the law at that point, so the law wasn't doing it. And this isn't a new idea. Paul isn't teaching something revolutionary per se in the sense that he's pulling it out of thin air. It was revolutionary because nobody thought along those lines. Everybody thought that you had to follow the law. But the truth is, this has always been the case. Even from before the law, faith is what brought along righteousness. And then he even shows that the the idea of the Gentiles receiving salvation wasn't a new idea. Because at this point, they all thought this was something brand new and nobody wanted to have anything to do with it because the Jews were set apart from the Gentiles. But in Genesis 22.18, it says, And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. From the beginning, God had intended in including the Gentiles into the blessing of his covenant. From the very beginning. This wasn't a new thing, even though they all thought it was. So therefore, all who are of the faith, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. They are blessed with the gift of salvation alongside Abraham not for their works, not for being a Jew, not for following the law, but rather choosing to trust in God and placing their faith in Jesus. Amen? So next week, we're going to go ahead and and continue with Paul making his case for salvation by faith alone. But until then, we'll go ahead and wrap it up right now. But until then, let's, let's be a people who remembers that truth. Let's remember... And live our lives like people who are saved by faith. Recognizing that there's nothing that we can do to add to what Jesus has already accomplished. And when we actually attempt to add something, that that we're actually demonstrating a lack of faith in what Christ has accomplished. Amen? Amen. Let's go and stand to our feet.